So our thoughts are bonded one to another, but more and more we understand uh, the vanity of the eye, the number of thoughts are reduced, thereby the number of emotions are reduced, thereby a number of reactions to the life is reduced. So ultimately the goal of all yogis is reducing our thoughts, emotions, and our reactions to experience just now, the present moment. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. All right, Curious Yogis, we are back with another exciting episode. And I know that I say every episode is exciting, but this one really, really is special, which I'm going to let you know why it's extra special to me after I read this incredible bio. So this week's guest is Krishna Chaitanya, otherwise known as Krish, who is the founder director of Aero Yoga Eco Ashram. At the age of 18, Krish joined the Ramakrishna Vivekananda Monastic Order, where he studied the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta and Sanskrit scriptures. After six years in this monastery, Krish went to the Bihar School of Yoga to study traditional Hatha Yoga and Yoga Nidra. He also studied the subtleties of prana and meditation from Swami Rama's Himalayan tradition in Rishikesh under Swami Veda Bharati. Krish completed his yoga teacher training from Shivananda Ashram in Kerala, where he volunteered as a karma yogi for two years. After 12 years of living in ashrams and seeking the wisdom of gurus, Krish got disillusioned with everything spiritual and lost hope. Is it ever possible for him or anybody to become enlightened in this modern life? Since then, Krish has been trying to understand what it means being spiritual from a realistic standpoint and made it his mission to unlearn everything he learned over the years. Krish started teaching yoga as an independent teacher from 2009 and very soon started organizing yoga teacher trainings. Since then, Krish has organized and led more than 95 yoga teacher trainings, graduated more than 1,600 students from 50-plus countries. Currently, Krish teaches more about what is not yoga and spirituality and allows the students to discover what is yoga for them rather than explaining the textbook version of yoga. Wow, what an incredible bio. Such devotion to dedicate so much life to truly understanding and living yoga, spirituality, self-realization, and then subsequently unlearning it and... I think this is a really inspiring, insightful conversation. And it's extra special to me because this is my four-year anniversary to the exact month here that I completed my 200-hour yoga teacher training at Aero Yoga Eco Ashram, hosted and led by Krish and his partner Lily and their incredible team of teachers cooks, Ayurvedic doctors, just a total sanctuary that they've created and such a turning point for my own yoga journey, my own teaching journey, 
I mentioned it in the episode, but I met Nurse Yogi there, my beautiful partner, and it was just an incredible experience. So I highly recommend checking out their website. I'll leave the link in the show notes. It's They offer not only yoga teacher trainings, but yoga intensives, Ayurvedic, Panchakarmas, and other types of treatments and retreats. So enjoy this conversation. Krish gives us so much insight into his wisdom, his knowledge, his lived experience, really, really of the essence of what yoga is, how yoga is lived, how yoga is studied, and who exactly the yogi is. So enjoy this one. I know there's something here for everybody. I'll meet you on the other side. Welcome so, so, so much to A Curious Yogi Podcast, Krish. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. I'll definitely be giving some context into the episode, but just to begin, I really want to start by appreciating you and appreciating Lily as just before I was before we started recording, because this is a very exciting kind of anniversary for me that's been four years since I did my 200-hour teacher training at your beautiful ashram in Karnataka. So I just really want to appreciate you for the the whole happening that you've unfolded there and just how many yoga practitioners' lives have been shifted in that beautiful center that you created. Thank you. Thank you for coming here. Yeah, it was so great. And I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit at the end and I can just start the episode by definitely recommending any any yoga practitioner that's maybe not even looking to teach, but looking to deepen their exploration of what yoga is or what yoga could be to check out the Aero Eco Ashram in Karnataka because it's such a magical place. Thank you. Yes. So I would love to just start by, you know, and this is also kind of exciting for me because I have studied with you and I I spent a month there in the ashram and, and learned so much about the teachings of yoga and the traditions of yoga, but I never had the chance to really hear or learn about your personal journey, your personal story. I know you lived in ashrams and a more monastic life for 12 years or so traveling around India. So I'd love if you could start by giving us a Cole's notes, a short version of how you came onto this yogic path and what drew you into this whole life that you've created for yourself. I would say most of things in my life uh, just happened. I never planned, had any goal or ambition, but a lot of things just unfolded on its own. Like when I finished my high school, I said time to go to college. I was not able to make any decision which college, which uh, field I had to go to. My parents, uh, like all other Indian parents, uh, gave me options of offers in different colleges. I went and checked everything, but I said no to all of them because in my heart, I always knew that I'm never going to be a nine to five job. Uh, person. I always wanted to do something for Indian society. Uh, the patriotism, which I got it from 
reading Swami Vivekananda, whom I consider as my primary teacher and inspiration. So I'll, I always wanted to do something for India, but I was not sure what to do exactly. So I spent about uh, uh, one year almost just reading newspapers, uh, not sure what to do, uh, exactly how can I help this country. So during that one year, what I realized was uh, the greatest help anybody can give to anybody is uh, a spiritual knowledge. In Sanskrit, we have a saying, helping other people with food is good, clothes is better, with education more better, but the highest gift anybody can give is spiritual knowledge. And I also kind of understood at that time, uh, the problems in the society is never going to go away. It doesn't matter how many, how many we solve, there are always going to be social injustice, social inequalities. We can never solve them 100%. But instead of solving the social problems, the root cause of all problems is uh, our ignorance of not knowing what to do with our own life. And we call it in Sanskrit, avidya. So I understood at that time uh, as a 17, 18 years old kid that if I truly want to help anybody, first I need to be enlightened. I need to uh, actually achieve that spiritual wisdom. And then automatically I can share that knowledge that's the highest gift we can give. So at that time, I was hoping that enlightenment is something it takes a couple of years, three years, four years. So I went into the uh, a place in Himalayas. They said, no, I'm not allowed, but they sent me down to a different monastery uh, where I need to start from the uh, very beginning. So I started in a, a Ramakrishna mission, which is also known as Ramakrishna Vivekananda Monastic Order, uh, where I was very blessed uh, not only have access to all the scriptures and one of the best intellectual traditions in India, and also was fortunate to meet uh, whom I can start as yogis, uh, some of them older monks who are had a spiritual experiences and um, yeah, so I studied and tried and uh, and I realized very soon that enlightenment is not as easy as I was thinking. It requires a lot more work and a lot more practice. And unfortunately, the place where I was, uh, it's a more it does not give opportunity to learn more yogic practices uh, like every ashram in India. They focus on only one thing, one teacher, one teaching, one practice. Uh, not all the ashrams are open-minded to learn new things. So I wanted to learn more about actual physical hatha yoga and uh, pranayama practices to aid my meditation because my meditation was not progressing there even after seven, eight years. Uh, but at the monastery where I was, it was ridiculed to practice too much hatha yoga and pranayamas because it makes you a very self-conscious, body-conscious, which goes against the teachings of Ramakrishna. So I left that monastery and went to Bihar School of Yoga, 
uh, where I wanted to learn more about physical aspects of Hatha Yoga, Pranayama, Yoga Nidra. Uh, so I was blessed to uh, learn a little bit from there. But I could not stay there long enough because, again, uh, the same reason every organization in India wants you uh, mold you into one uh, one way. Every organization is just one way, and uh, I don't. I did not feel I fit into that uh, cult worshiping gurus, and uh, that's not really my path. I'm more into. Jnana Yoga, Advaita and Practitioner. I'm not into worships, all of that. So I left Bihar School of Yoga and then went to uh, Swami Rama. It's a Himalayan tradition in uh, Rishikesh, based out of Rishikesh, which is specialized again into the pranayamas and meditations. So I learned a little bit from there. Then I went to some other yogi near Rishikesh where I lived for about six months into deeper meditations. Uh, still, uh, none of these schools actually teach, did not give me the enough practice I'm looking for. So I kept on searching. I went to Shivananda Ashram in Kerala where I did my 200 hours, 300 hours. Uh, in between, I tried with different teachers so I was blessed to meet a lot of teachers and learning a little bit from every place. Uh, but at the end, I felt uh, all organizations restricts my freedom of what I'll, I think, what I feel, uh, what I want to say or teach. Uh, I felt all organizations are limiting me. So I came out of all organizational setup I wanted to be an independent uh, teacher, an independent practitioner. So I stayed about uh, eight months in a solitude doing my own practice. And But after eight months again, I got bored. I felt it's too extreme, too extremes. One side, I lived in the ashrams where there are 500 people, 1,000 people, international, very active life. On another side, I went into complete extreme solitude and silence for almost uh, other extreme, which also did not help me in the long run. So I wanted something middle ground. I wanted to be with people, right people, but not too crowded, too busy. Uh, so that's how I started uh, yoga teacher trainings and eventually setting up this ashram where it's not too much organization and corporate-like, but at the same time, you have some people around. At the same time, you have freedom to live the life the way we want. Beautiful. Wow. Such conviction at such a young age to go on that journey. You know, so many young people that have a kind of spark inside for anything, never mind self-realization. That's like the ultimate spark for a young person. But to just keep carry on searching and searching and going to all these very top revered schools and like you said, organizations, it's quite extraordinary to think of all the bits that you've taken in and then to kind of turn it into your own happening, which... That's something that I was really attracted to. Even before I came to your ashram, before I came there, 
I had a kind of sense of the freedom and I'm always someone that's attracted to freedom. And I appreciated that about the way that you share yoga and also very interesting about your eight months of solitude. I'm wondering if now where you are in your life or your spiritual practice, how would you describe your spiritual view today? It changed a lot because I started at the very angus uh, before even I, I was exposed to what the world is, what the life is all about. From the very angus, I was trying to be a monk. The world is a nonsense. Everything material is useless. Give up everything. Like uh, that's the path, uh, extreme path I was attracted to as a young kid. But as I grew older, I realized that I do have a desire. So I do have, want to see the world more, experience more life experiences, which came into conflict at that time. And there was a feeling of guilt uh, all the time whenever my subconscious memories coming to the desire to uh, see the world, experience the world, it felt like my mind wants different, uh, my heart want, my brain wants something and then my heart wants different. So there was always a conflict between experiencing the world and renouncing the world. And uh, over the years, it's all about my uh, reconciliation of that. How to be in the world, but uh, uh, moderation. Where do you make that line that world does not make us uh, materialistic. At the same time, how can we see the spirituality in a bustling world? So my, as of right now, for me, more than meditation, for me, meditation is easy. Doing yoga is easy. I feel if I do that, I feel like a lazy. I'm doing nothing to the world. Right now, I feel I actually respect the people who live in the world, create employment, actually work with the world and help the world. I appreciate them more than the people who give up the world. Uh, I'm not saying that monks are not that great. You need a monks and to people, renunciation is important. Uh, but renunciation should not be happening superficial level. It has to happen uh, giving up has to happen naturally. But until that giving up happens naturally, a person should have the freedom to explore everything in their life, uh, experience everything in their life without any fear. So for my present understanding of yoga is more about how do you experience in the life without feeling the world as a problem. So... Would you say that when we think of renunciation, especially because yoga, not only in India, but around the world is practiced by what's called householders or people that aren't able to move into a monastery or even have the real space in their lives to renounce the world in that sense. So how can we as meditators or uh, yoga practitioners embrace the idea of renunciation on an inner level while still being of service in the world externally? Both external and internal renunciation is important. Uh, 
In the external renunciation, it's more about uh, keeping their life simple. It's not necessary that we have to give up everything, but possessing only what is needed. Uh, there is a difference between needs and wants. There's nothing wrong in pursuing the needs. In fact, uh, that it's about how we use the stuff. And it's not about the stuff itself, but how we use the stuff. Suppose the computer here can be a super distracting thing if I allow, uh, allow it to be, or I can use the same computer for helping the world. So there's nothing wrong with computer itself, but how I use the computer. So from that perspective, it's not about uh, giving up is not in a, uh, it's about giving up the stuff, but giving up uh, how, how our connection with the stuff around, how we want to use it. How, as long as we are using the stuff, uh, the stuff cannot bind us, cannot give us the reason why renunciation is recommended in the first place is everything leads to the next next thing, next thing, next thing. The world, we call it a bondage. It's a chain. Probably if you remember the story of a monk and his underwear. Uh, there's this, a famous story. Uh, do you remember that story? Please tell it. So it's a story about a monk living in a cave. He owns only a couple of underwears. Uh, every day he washes one of one underwear and uh, dries it up for the next day. So one day, somehow rat got into his cave, started biting his only underwear. So he's uh, really disturbed about it, that he uh, he's worried about rat coming and eating his underwear next day, so he can't meditate. So he went down to the town and asked the town people, how can I get rid of the rat? Somebody said, sir, you need a cat. And uh, he got a cat, took it a cat to the cave. Cat was taking care of the rats, so his underwear is safe. But after some time, all rats are finished and cat does not have anything to eat. So it started meowing and distracting him when he was meditating. So... And now he was thinking, what about if I leave the cat back to from where he got it? But then he's afraid rat might come back again. So he needs to keep the cat. So how can he take care of the cat? So his uh, disciples in the town suggested him, oh, you need to have a cow. This cow gives the milk. You can give that milk to the cat and also can feed you. It's good for you. So he took a cat, a cow, which was giving milk and taking care of the cat. It went down well for a few days. After some time, uh, it's a winter time. There's not anymore any grass around and the cow doesn't have enough food. So when he was meditating, cow enters into the, his cave and uh, uh, now cow doesn't have the food. Uh, so he goes to the town again and asks the people, my cow is starving, doesn't have enough food. What can I do about it? So somebody said, oh, you should get married and to have a wife. A wife will take care of your cow and the cats and rats and everything. So he, he married and he took the wife to the cave and the wife was 
taking care of everything went on for some time. But after some time, wife got getting bored and the uh, husband, you're meditating in the cave very well, but I'm getting bored here. I need a radio, a transistor. I can have some music and something to occupy. So he bought a radio. So the woman started asking and the radio, she uh, started hearing all the ads. Uh, the right soap for the clothes, right soap for this, right this, right that. So the woman keep asking him, husband, I need this, I need this, we need this, we need this for everything. So now to fulfill all the needs of his wife, he has to start find a job because he needs money. So uh, it's a funny story about uh, a monks uh, trying to protect the underwear how it ends up everything. It, it, it is nowhere uh, uh, to offend the women or the marriage or anything. It's just a funny story about how the life traps us into one, into another, one, into another. The idea of renunciation is if we possess the least amount of stuff uh, so that the time and energy we have is more dedicated to whatever we want. Uh, in external world, having a less number of things. And it's uh, this is what we call as a minimalism, even in the modern world, in the Japanese psychology of minimalism, uh, does show a huge change in the quality of life, possessing the least amount of this stuff, only what we need. Yeah, yoga does recommend not possessing the stuff that we don't need at the external level. But eventually, renunciation is all about uh, renouncing the I. How to take the I out of our thoughts, mm. our emotions, our actions, our memories. Uh, the more and more we take the I out of our own thoughts and mind, we see the life as not as a conflict, not a problem to solve. Right now, as long as there is an I, we see the world as there are a lot of problems in the world. I need to go and solve them. And I need to do this. I need to do that. I should not be doing that. So many times there is a, um, a doership gives us a false idea that uh, I has a freedom to do whatever we want. But eventually, we, uh, we realize that um, everything happens. Uh, there's a much bigger picture than I. There's a lot more things beyond the I and uh, you. And when we, when we understand that, we let go of the I. We see uh, truly what life is. Beautiful. Is that sense of identifying with the I, the asmita that we would say as the kleshas? Is that the sense of identifying with me as uh, the individual? I would not say klesha. When you say klesha, again, it's a kind of distraction, a distractive thing. But we need an I. Without I, we cannot function uh, at the present stage. So now... We say, like, you need another thorn to take the thorn out of the foot. 
in the same way, we can't get rid of the I completely, but understanding what that I is, uh, is most of the yoga journeys. Like a more and more, we understand what I is, mm. we understand that uh, the illusions that we weave around ourselves, the more and more we understand that opposite of illusion is wisdom, knowledge. So the more and more we understand the I, try, try to understand the I, uh, we understand what I is not. Like when you were speaking about the monk, I was kind of, I actually, once you started telling the story, I did remember it. But just, it kind of illuminates the power of imagination that the whole world can kind of unfold just from what sparks in the mind and the mechanism. And I'm wondering when you're talking about learning and understanding the, the ego, which is included in the intellect and the mind, as we start to observe it through our yoga practice, through our meditation practice, is that where the identification gets loosened from the sense of I. We know that the I is there. There's still a Bobby moving through the world, doing her job, having her responsibilities, but the the attachment to it or the mixing with it is starts to become less through the practice uh, of yoga, through the practice of meditation. It may not uh, less, but the effect is less, or what you call cons uh, after effect. Uh, it's like a dream. When we are dreaming, uh, currently we are not aware. Like uh, we think that uh, a tiger is chasing you in the dream and we are scared, we run, we wake up with a pounding heart. But uh, the knowledge of the self, or I would say non-self, enables us to realize that what is happening is happening, but it's not really real. So you still continue to have the feeling that I'm a Barbie, I'm a Canadian, I'm a woman, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing all of that. But you're not, that attachment uh, reduces, as you said, yes, as it uh, lessens. Uh, it does not cause the next thought. Yeah, when I say trap or the th a chain, it happens in our mind. If I think I'm a Krish, I'm an Indian, that thought is a base for my next thought. Suppose if you say something good about India, it makes me uh, feel good. It makes me proud, uh, pride. Or it makes me think you are a good person because you're praising my country. The base is I am born in India. I India attachment is there. So it causes my next thought, next thought, next thought, next thought. So our thoughts are bonded one to another. But more and more we understand uh, the vanity of the I. The number of thoughts are reduced thereby the number of emotions are reduced, thereby a number of reactions to the life is reduced. So ultimately the goal of all yogis is 
and reducing our thoughts, emotions, and our reactions to experience just now, the present moment. And that's something like just that spark of here and now or that spark of freedom that can come in those moments. It seems that that's something that keeps people returning to yoga and meditation around the world again and again is that desire to have some kind of relief from this never-ending, very real feeling story that actually this is who I am, just this individual I with all the attachments that come along with it. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about how you share these very deep, profound teachings of yoga, even just in those last few minutes about understanding the I. To so many foreigners that come into your yoga programs or foreigners that are attracted to yoga, and we come to yoga totally out of the cultural context because we're the way yoga is shared around the world and even the way it's shared some places in India you know, like before you were talking about the organizational, the very structured format. And then on, in the West, it's almost the opposite where it's kind of yoga is a free for all, you know, and then how do you kind of reconcile those two worlds, if you will, that it's really one yoga, but it's kind of it's so out here. And how do you bring it back to the center, mm -hmm. back to the essence? If I understand your question, like it's about how do we teach about this profound Eastern thoughts for somebody who's not part of, had the cultural background similar to where we come from. Uh, yes, it has been a challenge. In fact, I find that I learn a lot about the life from my students more than I teach them. <laughs> I don't know how much of what I teach helps them, but the kind of questions and the discussions people bring it to me <laughs> actually helps, helps me to understand what life is. Uh, yeah, there is an exchange. Uh, definitely, I am curious to learn more about uh, what the background of a person because what is taught in India or in uh, Asia anywhere in general is mostly geared towards extreme renunciation and for the monks. And most of the time it doesn't work for even for the monks. Most of the monks today, they live a modern life. They have plenty of money. They don't need to go for begging. And they don't need to meditate as they were supposed, the discipline and all of that. Uh, that you don't see that anymore in the modern monasteries nowadays. So a lot of those teachings, what is taught in the scriptures, are the text. Um, they're hard to practice even for the monks of today. So when we try to teach uh, somebody who is not part of this culture, Initially, when I started teaching, I had a, a lot of kickback, not kickback, 
what rejection people uh, uh, find I am telling them what I'm telling is very offending them or a kind of when I started teaching Westerners back in 2009 and 10, a lot of my students did not like me. They hated me because what I'm telling them is uh, you are living a life of ignorance. You have no idea what to do with your life. And I was quite harsh. The way I come from a monastic perspective uh, that you're wasting your life in pursuing the things, materialis materialistic things that it doesn't matter really. So there's a lot of pushback. But over the years, I'm getting better and better how to soften the same teaching, but tell in a way that people can relate to uh, without making them feel offended. I still offend a lot of people uh, because my main theory is all about uh, spiritual hypocrisy which is my, my specialization, I talk about uh, there is so much hypocrisy in the name of yoga all over the world, not only in the West, in India too. But in India, luckily, we have at least some good examples um, to see uh, who truly, what truly yoga is. Unfortunately, in the West, it's very hard to find those examples finding the people who dedicated their entire life for the practice of meditation, people who meditate six to 10 hours a day, live a life of selflessness. So there's not much examples in the West, uh, at least in the olden times, but I'm sure as more and more uh, yoga is expanding, you have people practicing yoga for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and more and more good examples, it's a matter of time. Once we see a life of a yogi, we learn a lot more than any other books or schools or trainings can teach. There's nothing that can teach us what is yoga more than actually living in the presence of a yogi. And uh, the more and more we examples we see, we understand what yoga is truly. So for me, intellectually, trying to teach mm. what yoga is, uh, it doesn't matter from which part of the world people come from. It's never easy. It's always trying to give examples. Yeah? Mostly trying to tell people what is not yoga and trying to make people think and reflect, uh, figure out what yoga is because Basically, trying to understand yoga is understanding oneself. And understanding of the self is a, a takes time. And I'm sure no teaching goes waste. And every class, every practice uh, builds up year after year and year after year. I can see a lot of students I met 10 years ago or uh, 20 years ago or five years ago. Each time when I see them, I can see they're getting more and more matured. So I trust just it's a matter of time. As long as a person can continue to practice, their idea of yoga and their idea of own self gets better. Yeah, it's like that analogy of the seed and the sprout. And the more that we practice, the more that we actually earnestly show up to understand our own self, 
it's like watering the seed and the sprout just keeps growing from there. And it's like, what, what are we watering? Are we watering the seed of the ignorance? Like you had said before, are we watering those seeds of awareness? And I was laughing when you were talking about when you first started teaching that you said your students didn't like you because my teacher one time, he said, if the student doesn't want to do the work, it's really easy to hate the teacher because sometimes like, not just yoga, like the asana, fine, that can be challenging. But the most challenging part of this practice of sadhana for me is facing my own mind, watching where I'm attached, where I'm stuck, where I'm bound, and always wanting to get free. But it's not comfortable and easy all the time. Like somehow in the West, this idea of like yoga as a feel good kind of happening is the primary attraction to it, which it does make you feel good. It does happen if you ask somebody continues the practice. Like a Mazata, the uh, we are very lucky. The kind of students who come to our ashram are people who have been doing yoga for some years and ex had some background in the traditional yoga. So we get quite a matured uh, students, and we could see that uh, they did not, they were not like that when they started the yoga journey. And uh, they started from the, like everybody, from the basics. But while the years they keep practicing, their idea of yoga got better and better and better. And yeah, uh, the magic of yoga, just pra keep practicing. Uh, makes us better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely could reflect that the the type of students that you attract are more mature. I've I don't think I realized it at the time when I came into my program there, but to be with a group of very sincere folks who are genuinely interested in learning the deeper essence, the deeper elements the more profound elements of yoga. And now in the last year since I've been teaching or seen other teacher training programs around, I really see that a certain type of person or a certain type of yoga practitioner is drawn to that kind of program that you're teaching. And I guess you must have honed that over the years to really see like folks that want to come to you are not necessarily the ones that will go to a different type of training program or retreat program. In fact, when we started teachers training, we used to have like 30, 40 people on wait list. We found that too many people, it's very harder to maintain the quality. So since we moved into the ashram, the very reason why we moved into this ashram and we before this, uh, we were doing great in uh, Dharmashala and Kerala, the tourist places. The very reason we came away from all tourist areas is we want to get away from too many people coming. And we increased our prices high. We charge one of the highest prices for teacher trainings in India. Of course, we also give more than any other teacher training gives, like 18 acres land and a good quality food, more number of teachers. But we also don't advertise too much uh, to get a lot of people here. So 
yeah, it depends upon yeah, teacher training or any program. What we do is only 50%. Another 50% is mostly it's a group energy. Just a group of people that come together, they want to land together. And just the students make that magic happen. A lot of the times uh, we just watch and what it evolves. And every group evolves uh, in its own way, in its own unique way. Mm-hmm. I'm laughing because I'm thinking of the magic that happens at a yoga teacher training program and how it's kind of like a summer camp for adults. You know, you're all kind of together. And I'm also laughing because I did tell you before we started recording that I met my partner at your ashram when we did our teacher training. Not that people should expect that to happen when you do something intensive, but it just kind of shows how to me and a few of the friends I've still keep in touch with from that just one month together that like the like attracts like and and so often I've found students or other teachers kind of finding some um, kind of solitude or loneliness once you really start to turn on to yoga and a meditative life or a yogic life kind of it can be isolating and people long for community and long for that sangha and and a teacher training program is really or any kind of spiritual community is such a place to remember that there's many other folks sincerely interested in living this way and and studying in this way and i think what you've created is really it's such a test testament to that and just to touch a little bit more on your trainings and what you're what you're offering I'm I know like from my experience there we learned so much about the asana and the physical elements of yoga which is essential if one wants to do a teacher training program but how do you how do you differentiate and and help people learn that there's so much more to yoga than just the physical. Like, I guess, do you find that people that come to you, they already are kind of sensing and stepping towards the other elements? Or is it like sometimes people are totally shocked that it's not just, you know, 2% of yoga is asana? <laughs> yeah, actually, most of the students who come to a Russian they come because we teach what we teach beyond the asanas. We do have a good amount of uh, philosophy. Uh, like, in fact, we have four philosophy teachers in the ashram right now. Like, besides me and Swami, we have Murti. Probably you haven't seen him. He teaches also yoga sutras. And we just hired a senior yoga teacher who is also into philosophy. We have another asana teacher who loves teaching philosophy. We have a lot more philosophy teachers than asanas, asana teachers. Yeah, definitely uh, we do need to uh, cover, we do cover a bit of what is yoga beyond the asanas. But 200 hour training, a lot we give focus on the physical aspects because people come here for the qualifications. They need to learn how to practice and teach. While in 300 hours, we give more focus on 
people already knows physical aspects. They don't need to uh, know a lot more. Uh, they're more interested in the practice and spirituality. So in 300 hours, we have yoga classes of two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half hours in the evening. Uh, actually, with pranayamas, like three hours. We give more on the practical aspects in advanced teacher trainings. But the theory also, uh, less about the asanas, it's more about philosophy. But uh, still, a lot of the philosophy and spirituality uh, cannot be taught in a regular setting times because, uh, in fact, I myself many times uh, don't feel comfortable teaching about a lot of deeper stuff uh, because it has to be coming from the student side. Like uh, the tradition in yoga says, uh, learning should happen through questioning. So if a person does not have that uh, jignasa, in Sanskrit jignasa is uh, that self-inquiry, but feeding them with too much information beyond what a person can uh, accept or assimilate can actually confuse them. Spiritual teaching can cause confusion and chaos when a person uh, does not digest it properly or does not assimilate it properly. So there is a danger with talking too much spirituality also. So mostly we try to teach uh, basic scriptural uh, uh, listings and basic stuff. But the true spiritual knowledge, the only way to learn is, we say self-study Swadhyaya and uh, self-inquiry and asking questions. You have to find a teacher. You need to ask question one, two, one. And the teacher try to answer that from your perspective, not mm. my perspective. A lot of the times, the problem with the organizations are the programs like teacher trainings, are the branded teachers, is answers are like well-packaged, generic answers. Talking from the scripture standpoint of view, my standpoint of view, what my guru said. They're not really customized to who the student is. Mm. So the real um, need is to understand who the student is, whoever is asking the question. There's no distinction of uh, student and teachers at one point of uh, at one stage. It's more about a seeker. Why a person asking this question? And suppose a lot of people ask about my mind is distracting in meditation. What can I do? So I always ask them, in first place, why you want to meditate? Why are you sitting for meditation? A lot of people can't give me a proper answer. I tell them, first figure it out why you want to meditate before you wonder about what is happening inside your meditation. Yeah, so a lot of us many times, yoga and meditation, as they keep on expanding, they can be like a drugs. Yeah, yoga makes you feel good. Meditation makes you feel good. So everybody's trying that, having it, so let me also have that. 
without fully understanding why am I doing that? Uh, what I real exactly what to uh, get out of their practice. And what I want to get out of yoga, what you want to get, what he wants, she wants is not the same. Mm. Understanding that unique needs, uh, our karmas comes into the play and personalizing our practice to our needs, not to our wants, is where uh, yoga can be very beneficial or superficially beneficial or give us a false idea that I'm a yogi, I'm very spiritual, although I am not. It can give us that false idea. Just because I'm doing a Vedasana meditation, I'm a very spiritual person. But doing asanas and meditation itself is not a test of spirituality. At the end of the day, they're just a means. Your actual test of spirituality is how you deal with the life around, not what we do in our, inside our head, uh, but how we connect our inner world with the external world. Hmm. Wow, beautiful. And that kind of circles it back to, you know, your original inspiration to come on to this path of wanting to be of service to India, to people and, and how, I don't know if you felt that it's come full circle since you've set up your center and really started giving people this platform, this space to start to kind of the word that comes to mind is like chew on yoga like you know the food is there the the knowledge is there but we have to kind of take it in ourselves and chew on it and and taste it and let get give ourselves the the experience of it based on who I am in this world like have you do you feel you've you're you've you're reaching your goal of serving India and being of service? Well, firstly, I'm really one thing about this Ashim, I'm really happy is we have more than 35 employees, all of from this area, the, all of them come from very poor families. Most of them are a single earning person in the family. So even during the COVID time, we support a lot of employees. So more than the spiritual side of running the ashram, one other thing that really makes me happy is if I can help these people. It's not a big numbers, but I feel I'm contributing something to society. Like otherwise I felt, I personally came from a privileged background, uh, not only uh, materially, but intellectually and spiritually. I am one of the very few people uh, who had that, that access to places like most people would never have. I had the opportunity to, to live and serve some of the people who might think as enlightened masters, enlightened yogis. I had a close uh, contact with one of some of the intellectually sophisticated people. So I come from a kind of privilege and I, it always makes me feel guilty that uh, everything that I have is a gift I received from the life, from this country, and from this culture. 
what can I give back really? Uh, uh, yeah, there's a how much to give back. Like uh, one of the small thing we try to do is uh, supporting the staff here as much as we can and keeping an ashram alive in India because the other than supporting employees, second biggest thing that makes me happy is uh, we, we are actually one of the first uh, non-religious, non-sectarian ashram in India. Like in the ashrams in general, there were gurus, cults, and the, as I said before, uh, that tells your freedom what you can think and feel and what you can teach. But here we give a lot of value for not imposing any teachers or a single uh, a sect or single cultish idea. So every teacher is free to share whatever they want. We don't tell the teachers what they cannot teach. Everybody is free to teach whatever they come from, their background. So that was personally the concept of the ashram. Uh, hundreds of years in the ancient time, ashrams were not corporatized. Am I right word? Not uh, uh, spoiled by millions of dollars money, they are flooded today. Unfortunately, ashrams got corrupted in the recent uh, decades because the, the amount of money they receive is literally millions of dollars flooding from all over the world. When you have so, so much of money, you want to run a lot more centers, a lot more people. It's very hard to keep the purity of the teachings. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad that at least there's one place, one ashram in India where people can. It's very hard to find teachers who is open-minded, uh, who accepts all kinds of thoughts, uh, it's very hard, but if uh, there are teachers who love uh, more open-minded approach to yoga, we do have a platform for both students and teachers. You had mentioned before that one of your missions also was to unlearn, like maybe a personal mission to unlearn and discover what yoga is not from a textbook standpoint. And I'm wondering if you can let myself and the other curious listeners know like what is the key to unlearning or maybe if it's using like our critical thinking or when we approach these teachings when we approach you know yeah the, the teachings of yoga because it can seem very dogmatic and strict and rigid and yet there is a kind of freedom that's the the essence of yoga that's why we all come to it is to to get free well at least that's why I'm coming to yoga to have that sense of freedom so what's the key to unlearning and still inquiring like you said or discovering deeper and deeper into yoga I would say honesty and integrity of all four aspects of ourself it's it's a one of the cornerstone teachings of Swami Vivekananda, when we say I, uh, our I does four different things. We can think, we can feel, we can act, and we have our subconscious mind, uh, which forms what I think I am today. 
many times when these four things not aligning with each other, then that's where all the problems starts from. Unle unlearning for me is more about how can we integrate what I think, what I feel, what I actually do the rest of the life, uh, uh, most of the time when I'm not doing yoga, out of the mat, and understanding my subconscious mind. The more and more I try to bring these four together, automatically results in less I. Many times I find the I is a result of these four things not working together. Like I think I'm a yogi, I'm very spiritual. But say, I feel the desire to eat a hamburger, looks so good, it smells so good, I have a feeling. But what I do about it, I tell, oh, don't eat hamburger, it's not good. Or I go and do that. Or the action, what I do, a reaction, I would say, more than action. And if I do that, how I process that? What kind of memory do I have it in my subconscious mind? Because actions turns into memories, forms our subconscious mind. The four different things happens at the same time. Many times when we're conflicted at these four levels, we pretend. The I is a result of the pretending. Suppose when I say, oh, I don't want to eat a hamburger because I am a yogi. Yeah, there's a I pretend something. Now, I'm not saying that you should eat burger and you should not eat burger. It doesn't matter. What matters is uh, our thoughts, our uh, emotions, our actions, our subconscious program. As long as the, these four are not working together, uh, we are causing more trap around ourselves. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the trap could be sweet. Yeah, we may not know that uh, we are in a sweet trap. And not necessarily trap means in a bad way or painful way. Pleasure or pleasant also could be a nice trap. Uh, breaking the trap, uh, the biggest key point, practically what I find is uh, selfless service. That means a lot of spiritual people many times, we don't do much work for the society or selflessly. Well, I say that I'm teaching yoga to help the people. That's not true. I'm getting paid. Yeah. Can you teach to the people when nobody's paying you? That's a, a different matter. Yeah. So if we want to help the world, teaching yoga is not the only thing. You can help people in every every single job, yeah, in every single moment. But are you doing it? Are you getting something in return? Can you do something where you get nothing in return? That's where I see selflessness. Again, to quote Vivekananda, selflessness is God. Or he says, how do you know that? You are doing the right thing. Anything that helps us to get away from the idea of self is the right thing. Anything that makes us feel the self more, 
uh, is causing more entrapment. So uh, the simple rule I like to follow is my thoughts or feelings or actions, are they making me, my I, stronger or weaker? Anything that makes stronger is a, I know that I'm getting into a trap. It's not a bad thing to getting into a trap, but just takes more time to untangle. All of us, we keep trapping, tangling ourselves. Again, several years we realize, oh, what did it did? And we had to go to a doctor or yoga or some big place to untangle all this and start again. We keep doing that, yeah? getting ourselves, tangle ourselves and untangling ourselves. Hmm. I love that. Would you say that that's, that's, you know, when we sit and close our eyes or we, we come into the practice, it's kind of a moment to observe or reflect the workings of that whole four-part mechanism. And then that's kind of why it's important to do that every day, to have that moment to just observe maybe where we've gotten trapped or where we're crystallizing that sense of the eye. So then we can open our eyes or step off the mat and go into the world and actually move selflessly and actually be in service in that way but that we have to kind of like the analogy of you know we have to put the mat air mask on ourselves first if we're in the airplane and it's crashing down so that's kind of like the practice checking in seeing where we're caught seeing where we're free allowing ourselves some more space to be in the world actually in service and actually in alignment with all those four elements Yes, self-study is hard because our self itself always uh, busy with past and future. As you very well said, meditating every day, uh, one of the first things that we do is self-study. By sitting in meditation, first thing we're trying to see our mind, watch our mind, observe our mind, see what goes on. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? just to be aware of them is definitely the fundamental uh, stone on which we had to start understanding ourselves. But for a lot of other people, it could be simple writing down. Every day, uh, it could be writing down or art. Uh, not everybody has that capacity to detach from their mind in meditation initially. So initially, even for meditation practitioners, it's good to maintain a journal. Like every day, uh, how was my meditation today? If I'm not, uh, when I say meditation, it's not about what I do, but technically meditation is something what we don't. Meditation should not be an action. There should be no action. It's all about letting go. So, uh, if I am not able to let go that specific meditation, what, what is bothering me? Just writing down and then asking ourselves honestly, why am I thinking so much about this instant? Something that happened yesterday or this or this. Then we need to ask, when I ask myself why I'm reacting, because all our thoughts is a kind of reactions, most of the thoughts. Yeah, it's possible to have creative thinking 
a spontaneous creative, but recognizing our thoughts, what is making me to think this way or feel this way uh, gives us an idea into our own subconscious mind. We start uh, understanding that uh, the reason why we react is something that happened to us in the past. And we have some anxieties and uh, anticipations that is making us th think this way. Now, once we understand that, then we need to make up our mind. What can I do about it? Yeah, I do have this desire. Or I do have uh, this fear. I do have this experience. How to process that? The only way you can do it is in the physical action. Mentally thinking about it doesn't go away. It doesn't matter how spiritual we are. We can't process certain experiences at a mental layer. We need to, to give an example. Suppose I, re, I recognize that my mind is thinking angry thoughts about a certain person. And I come out of my meditation and write it down. I have been feeling very angry about this person. Now I ask myself, why am I feeling angry? You might say, oh, this person said something offensive to me. I did something not right for me. Fine. But why do you think that's not right? If you keep understanding, it's uh, all experiences request two people. It's not just one person all the time. And... When we understand our own role and try to process that, why it happened? What can I do? So now, once you understand the whole experience, what is causing us reactions, you need to reach out to this person. And how you deal with that, it could be, if you think that person actually did injustice for you, you have two choices. Either go and beat them up. <laughs> if you think that, you are under under the uh, you you are a victim of injustice. You need something, then do something about it. Yeah, we need to find a solutions, or we need to think if it is oh my own ego that is causing me that. Then you need to give offer opposite to anger, the loving thoughts, or do something physically that can overcome our a fear which is at the very root of anger. Every anger, anger comes from fear, whatever is required. So uh, it's a work of every understanding our mind in meditation, then processing that in, into our day-to-day -day life until we stop reacting. And when we keep doing it again and again and again, we become more alert, like the new drivers. Uh, when people are driving, learning to drive initially, we have to be really careful watching everywhere, what comes what, from what. But if you're driving every day, that alertness happens much easier. You know automatically what needs to be done. You are not afraid of the road and vehicles. Same thing with meditation practice. Every day, the more and more we understand and translate that into day-to-day -day life, our reactions gets less and less reaction to the world that leaves us a lot of freedom to be present, to observe, to listen, to act from spontaneity and creativity. Mm.
beautiful. That's such a great tangible practice that myself and the listeners that we can just take away from this conversation. And you've kind of touched on it or referred to it a little bit throughout the whole talk today of the importance of inquiry and self-inquiry and asking questions and even just now thinking about how we can sit and ask ourselves why and what is coming up. And it's very fitting because Jigasa is kind of the inspiration for me to starting this podcast, just to be able to ask questions and give inspiration for my own practice. So I love to ask the guests at the end of our conversation to leave us not with a point of wisdom, but rather a point of inquiry that we can churn for ourselves in our own practice. Yeah, one of the fundamental thing I like to reflect a lot myself is this wall is a mirror. The external wall, what we are seeing outside is a reflection of our own self. Everything I'm experiencing is not happening out there, but it is happening inside us. My greatest point to I keep on reflecting again and again, trying to remember myself is this world is a mirror to our own self. So what we see outside is not out there, it's in our head. Nice. That's a really good point to remember. I love it. Well, I just really, really enjoyed this conversation. I think we covered a lot of points some of your story, inspiration for the practice, what is yoga, so much about the ashram. And once again, I'll just say to anybody listening, I'll put the website in the show notes for Aero Yoga, Aero Yoga Eco Ashram. Not only is it a yoga ashram, there's an Ayurvedic hospital there. It's in the countryside outside of Mysore by a beautiful river. Just such a shanti beautiful happening that you and Lily have created. So big shout out to you guys for the happening. And definitely, I hope to come back and visit you again soon. It's such a special memory for me. Thank you, Bobby. Definitely, you had to visit us soon. Yeah, it's such a beautiful place. And yeah, I hope that somebody listening gets turned on and comes and visits you guys. And um, just any chance to share and promote what you guys are doing. I know you don't advertise and because it is a kind of secret hideaway that you've got there, but it really is a special place. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and a lot of appreciation for you and Lily both. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdaya Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.